0: This is Indian Art History by Mash Podcast. Hello and welcome. I am Ayushi, and this is episode seven of Indian Art History Podcast. Picking up from where we left. In 5th century BCE, at the foothills of Himalaya, a young prince named Siddharth, on a journey into the city, gets overwhelmed by the sight of people suffering. In reaction to the several questions that take home in his head, he leaves his luxurious royal palace in Kapilavastu, disbanding all his familiar ties. He enters into a life of asceticism. He sits under a people tree in meditation for 49 days straight, philosophizing on his questions when the answers start dawning on him. He wakes up as the enlightened one. He wakes up as the Buddha. The tree under which he meditates comes to be known as Bodhi tree. The tree's descendant still survives where a temple has been built, known as Mahabodhi temple. After attaining enlightenment, Buddha delivered his first sermon in Sarnath and since then there was no stopping him. He became a traveller, teaching and spreading his philosophy wherever he went, drawing in more and more people from far and beyond. After his death, his teachings are compiled and developed into a religion that has become a major world religion after more than 2500 years. The religion came to be known as Buddhism. A century later, Ashoka Maurya, the third Mauryan king from 4th century BCE, after winning the Kalinga war, too gets consumed by the violence and carnage which takes a deep seat in his conscience. Overwhelmed by death and suffering, he finds himself asking the same questions. And solace comes to him through Buddha's teachings. Under his reign, Buddhism becomes one of the first major world religions to get wide-scale recognition as both the royalty and the masses started patronizing a wide range of artistic monuments and sculptures pertaining to the functions of the monastic order. As a major culture within the empire, trade of arts and craft was openly practiced, aided by easy movement of artisans, merchants and goods across the empire which let the gates open to many kinds of artisans to travel and experiment with their craft. From here starts the evolution of Buddhist art and iconography, where Buddha was normally imagined and crafted without a human body. One of the holiest of holy places for Buddhist pilgrims world over is Sanchi Stupa. It is considered holy for many scholars of art history as well because it marks as the earliest display of Buddhist sentiment through a set of artistic developments and iconography that started during this time. Sachi Stupa is a world of wonder. What may appear as a simple semi-circular mound actually holds objects pious not just to Buddhists and art lovers all over the world, but also to the modern Indian nation as an important site of heritage. Stupas are monuments that hold ashes or relics of important individuals. They gain a religious traction based on the cult of the dead. When Buddha died at 80 years of age in 5th century BCE, he asked his favorite disciple to erect a stupa over his ashes. His disciple went a little far. He divided Buddha's ashes into eight portions and erected eight stupas over each of them. BCE, Ashoka Maurya went even further. He opened these stupas and re-divided the relics into large numbers of stupas all over the country. With the aim to further spread the religion, the stupas became central to the proceedings of the Buddhist monastery. It was originally supposed to be the resting place of relics of the dead. The dead was usually a person important enough for a stupa to be built. Later, the word stupa started getting associated with Buddhism, largely due to the wide scale spread under Ashoka Maurya. The stupa at Sanchi was built by Ashoka. Sachi was near the commercial town of Vidisha from where his chief queen was visiting. Ashoka thought that this is reason enough for me to build the stupa. This stupa is supposed to hold the relics or truth of Buddha or that of his disciple. We don't really know clearly. By 50 BCE, Buddhism became even more popular in India. This was 400 years after Buddha's death. When the stupa was expanded to twice its size, made more majestic by installing stone slabs from the Sanchi hillside, and was adorned with beautiful sculptures. The semicircular mound is surrounded by stone railings with four main gateways. The gateways are made up of sandstone and display dramatic relief sculptures intertwined with each other frozen in the midst of an exaggerated action. Each gateway has three architraves with coiled ends. It looks just like the unfurling ends of a scroll. The three rest on thick rectangular pillars. Each gateway has a central narrative theme to the panels. These relief sculptures display nude human body forms, hybridized animals, plants, and geometric motifs. The relief narrations generally depict the tales of Jatakas. The Jataka tales consist of Buddha's previous lives in the forms of animals and other human beings and various stages of his own life as the Buddha. In total, these are 60 themes. In singular units of the relief sculptures are the motifs and adorned bodies that make up scenes from the life of Buddha. The scenes are set against the backdrop of towns, forests, buildings with balconies and vaulted roofs. There is a uniform language of visuals throughout the structure. The artists faced challenges while showing a sense of depth. To show a figure behind another, the figure is carved above the main figure to show what is farther and what is nearer. The relief sculptures seem like they are frozen in time, interacting with each other, engulfed in the rhythm of movement. This sense of movement is somewhat similar to the prehistoric cave art of India. There are a range of narrative techniques applied by the artisans. Some involve a single continuous narrative frame that goes from front to the back and some involve multiple episodes within a frame while some are just singular frames. This basically opened the life of Buddha to the artisan's interpretation and imagination. In those days, Buddha was only represented symbolically and never in human form because it was believed that after attaining enlightenment, Buddha gained freedom from all human bonds, including that from the human body as well. At this point of information, I am only thinking about the sculptor's dilemma of representing Buddha in an iconic manner so that it does not look too repetitive. They used meticulous symbology within their limitations to represent Buddha, that each symbol should educate the pilgrims about the different stages in Buddha's life. There are certain ways in which you can identify the presence of Buddha in the relief, such as a stupa, a bodhi tree, footprints, or a combination signifying Buddha. In one of the panels, the artists represented Buddha in a horse and an umbrella, without any human figure, telling of Prince Siddhartha leaving his palace in search of truth. Prints in the same frame would mean that Buddha has dismounted the horse. A horse without an umbrella means that the horse is heading back to the palace without Buddha. The narrative techniques of those times employed an artistic representation to solve the problems of those times. The problem was that of limited literacy among the pilgrims about the religion. These relief sculptures employed a number of narrative techniques that easily imparted spiritual lessons to the visiting pilgrims, telling the tales of Buddha. To meet the storyteller's goals, some events are shown in chronological order, while some events that are separated by time are represented together. And it looks like the artisan had the freedom to represent different perspectives in the same panel. There is hardly any depth or perspective. For example, a lotus in one panel is carved to give a side view, while in the same panel at another place the lotus is carved to give an aerial view. Trees are represented by large leaves, waves by wavy lines, one of the panels show a number of demons sent by Mara to fight Buddha. To make them look ghastly and dangerous, the artists carved broad features on their faces. A single panel tells many aspects of the same story. With a uniform language and a scholarly approach to the detail of Buddha's life, it's quite clear that the artisans worked in tandem with the monks and nuns who were very well versed with the many aspects and lessons to be learned from one story. As many artisans who joined were from different religious communities, Buddhist art grew as a collaborative effort of architects, masons, stone workers, and sculptors from diverse backgrounds and geographies. But who was funding these works of art that required the services of so many kinds of artisans? First of all, there was the piety, which had many participants who were rich and prosperous. And secondly, the royalty and the members of the royal family were also donating and patronizing the religious art and architecture. Thirdly, the piety and the royalty were connected by the organizational efficiency and excellent resources of the monastic order. The donors mainly consisted of monks and nuns, landowners, merchants, high officials, and artisans. Among thousand small donors of the Sanchi Stupa, there were 200 women donors as well. There are well-preserved inscriptions in Brahmi, carved on the railings and gateways of Sanchi Stupa, that record the names of many donors. This was also when stones were used for the first time. This must have posed a great challenge to the architects and other craftsmen because before this they were used to wood, bamboo, thatch, etc. Any stupa is accompanied by a chaitya and a vihar. A chaitya is a congregational worship hall and a vihar is a dwelling with a pillared veranda and a space for monks and nuns. Most of them cannot be dated as study of chronology of Buddhist art is a problem. Among the relief sculptures, Yakshi appears time and again quite extensively. Sculpted with a thin waist, deep-set navel and round breasts. In fact, there have been more findings of Yakshi and yaksha sculptures. Yakshis and yakshas are nature spirits, mischievous and benevolent, of mythical origins known as the protectors of forests and villages. Many yakshas and yakshis were also sculpted on pillars and even the carvings on the stupa relief. One of the popular sculptures found is called Didarganj Yakshi in Bihar. It is a freestanding, highly polished sculpture she has a voluptuous body and each fold in her dress is finely sculpted making her look delicate and formidable at the same time these were minor deities who had their cults flourishing when buddhist iconography was being formulated in many an iconic representation buddha appears as a raised or inlaid footprints in the relief The other day, I happened to find my way to an old shrine of a saint here in Jaipur, approximately 80 years old. And inside the marble floor had raised footprints marking the saint's presence once upon a time. These aniconic icons have survived millennia they were so widely popular and so widely accepted that across thousands of generations, across religious identities, you will find them enshrined all across India, marking the footsteps of so many important individuals. I always find it massively interesting when objects and symbols thrive successfully in the realm of rubbing off on other cultures and religions. The essence of each sculpture cannot be studied in isolation from each other because their mudras and movements weave a story pretty much in relation to the background and the context of the narrative. This detached appreciation of Indian sculptures happens in Western museums, which really takes away from all the fun and the story. Approximately at the same time when Socrates and Plato were thinking about politics, art and society of the West, Buddha was preaching the middle path. From here on under the patronage of several dynasties and their pieties, Buddhist art evolved not just in terms of representative techniques but also philosophically. The Buddhism of 5th century BCE was much different from the Buddhism of 4th century BCE. By 1st century AD, we see the first image of Buddha in human form. Buddhism did not just spread throughout India and down south, but also to the far east. Thank you so much for listening.